going to be continuing our study in Judges today, obviously. And uh, last week we looked at uh, the fact that God raised up yet again. We saw the second side of the story uh, of uh, Deborah and Barak and how God had raised them up to serve him by freeing Israel in, in battle. Uh, and one thing that's, that struck me as, as we've been going through this is how few people are available to serve God. How few people, and we saw that last week, we saw that more than half of Israel just kind of sat around, you know, oh, we're going to go take care of our, our sheep, we're going to go take care of our boats. Uh, there were very few who actually stepped forward and, and took a risk to, to serve the Lord. And that kind of forces us to ask a question, how healthy are they spiritually? How healthy are they as a nation? And when I think of that, I think, how honest are we with ourselves about our own spiritual health? Uh, in a recent study from York University in Canada, researchers asked 129 participants or subjects to walk or jog on a treadmill at speeds uh, they felt were light, moderate, or vigorous. And the study found that even after researchers had described to these people what counted, what, what, what actually qualifies as uh, light or moderate or vigorous activity, people tended to overstate or overrate their exercise levels. For example, people reported that they were performing vigorous physical activity, even though they were actually only uh, at a very moderate pace. Almost all subjects in the study were able to correctly identify the, the easy pace. You know, when, when they're walking very lightly on a treadmill, they can say, okay, this is not vigorous, this is easy. Uh, but volunteers fell short of meeting the requirements for the vigorous pace, which is defined as raising your heart rate between 77 and 93 percent of its max. Most of the people in this study didn't even get their heart rate to 75 percent, yet they reported vigorous activity. And so the study really uncovered a twofold problem to how we approach physical exercise and physical health. First of all, a wealth of evidence uh, that we already all know uh, clearly demonstrates the benefits of you know, uh, vigorous physical activity. But we also know that most people still don't do it, even though it's recommended. Uh, secondly, if we are so inclined to overstate, overrate, overestimate uh, the rate of exercise or the difficulty of exercise or how much exercise we're actually getting, then the problem is exponentially worse. And so again, I ask the question, how honest are we with ourselves about our spiritual health. You know, if people in general are so quick to overstate and overestimate their physical activity, I don't think it's probably too much of a stretch to conclude that we very easily do the exact same thing, but in a spiritual sense. Indeed, it's really easy, and it's actually very common for us as flawed people to overestimate our goodness or our faithfulness to God. Now, as we've been studying the book of Judges, it seems entirely possible in light of the evidence, in light of what we studied, that Israel has also overestimated their spiritual health. Uh, after all, what we've seen, that they will be, uh, they'll be able to experience peace in the land when God raises up a judge to deliver them, but all the judges have been flawed in one way or another, even if it means uh, they, they die, uh, they, they, don't have, they're not, they don't have the capacity to bring peace that lasts because they aren't there to keep the peace. Eventually they die. And so as soon as the judges die, the nation goes right back 
to rebelling against God, doing evil in his eyes. And we've already defined that. Doing evil in the eyes of the Lord means turning their hearts away from him, becoming enamored with the things in the world, falling in love with the things that they're surrounded by in the culture. And what that tells me, this, this cycle that they te- just keep going back and back into this cycle, tells me that Israel hasn't really been healthy in a spiritual sense even one time in this entire book. They have looked on the surface like they were healthy because they had peace. But what we're going to see today is that God has been raising up people, judges, to rescue them time and time again, not because of Israel's faithfulness to Him, but in spite of their stubborn, deliberate, willful unfaithfulness to Him. That is, He hasn't saved them because of their spiritual vitality. Rather, He saved them in spite of their lack of spiritual vitality. He hasn't saved them because they've responded properly to Him. Rather, He saved them in spite of the fact that they have not responded properly to Him. He's rescued them simply because He loves them. Now, when I say that they haven't really responded to Him properly, what do I mean? After all, the text has told us time and time again that they, they, they you know, undergo this oppression and they would cry out to the Lord. But what I mean is that, what we'll see today, they regretted the consequences of their sin. They regretted the consequences that they had earned for themselves. But they hadn't actually repented. They hadn't actually turned their hearts away from their sin. They hadn't actually experienced true, sincere Godly repentance. And one of the things that we'll see today is the vast difference between regretting your consequences and repenting of your sin. Now, as we open our Bibles to Judges chapter 6, we see that this next cycle lasts three entire chapters, uh, which is considerably longer than the previous stories have been. We had uh, you know, the last one was two chapters, but that's because it was telling the same story twice from different perspectives. But the fact that this story is so much longer should cause us to take a really deep and intentionally uh, slow look at the details to figure out what is making this cycle so different from the previous cycles. So let's start with verses 1 to 5 in Judges chapter 6. We read, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the roots of the land as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. Now the first thing that we should see here is that while the story of, of this is going to be the story of Gideon. This is the intro to the story of Gideon. He's the judge who's going to be raised up by God before the end of this chapter. We're going to get to that next week. Um, this is longer than the stories of the other judges. Uh, this cycle was actually shorter than most than, than all of the other cycles, right? After 40 years of, of peace in the land, which followed after Deborah and Barak being raised up, the people once again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That is, they, they turned their hearts continually away from God. And the Lord gave them over to their enemies this time for seven years. You might think, wow, you know, 
We've seen them, you know, in captivity for 20 years or 18 years, seven years. That doesn't seem like that much time. Uh, so maybe the people of Israel are actually starting to catch on and figure out why they keep being overtaken by the people of the land. But that's not the case. Rather, what we see here is that this is simply the worst oppression they've encountered yet. Rather than being sold into slavery like they have been before, now they're forced to just head for the mountains, head for the hills. They've lost control of the promised land completely. They're not even able to, to roam around freely in it, and they're starving to death. The land has been ravaged by the Midianites who have destroyed any and all crops that the Israelites had planted. Now, the Midianites, we can actually uh, trace that back several books to, to, to the time of Moses. Uh, they're an old enemy of the Israelites. Uh, they were a nomadic, tent-dwelling people who really, apparently, had no interest in uh, using the Israelites for some type of political power or uh, for slavery. Rather, what they're doing is just taking advantage of Israel economically. The things that Israel has in place to sustain themselves, they're just taking those things up. They're just hijacking the land. And they came in such huge droves that they and the camels are, are, are likened to locusts. Too many in number to be counted. This is the first time that the Bible's recorded anything, any, any type of uh, invasion that's this huge against Israel. So they would consume all the produce of the land. And left no sustenance, no crops, no livestock for the Israelites to eat. And so they're dying. And they're scared. They're, they're, they're running for the hills. And not surprisingly, this is a consequence, again, of Israel's constant rebellion against God. And this was not the plan that God had for them. Obviously, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you have your Bible and you want to put a little uh, footnote or side note in your margin, put Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 to 12. We won't, go, uh, we won't go there, but basically it's God's plan for the people when they come into the land that they would be able to have these crops that they didn't plant, that God has provided for them, and these plants would supply all their nutritional needs uh, with food that God had provided for them, food that they didn't plant, but which God had provided for them. So why isn't that the case? Because the Israelites have continued to reject God's plans. And thus the crops that they have planted, they don't get to eat. Whereas the opportunity was, plants that they didn't plant, they could have eaten if they would have just trusted in God. See, you can't take parts of God's plan that you like and reject the parts that you don't like. You can't take part of his word and spit out the parts that you don't like. That's just not the way it works. You know, we, we tend to uh, God's word like it's a bag of trail mix. Let's just be honest. You get a bag of trail mix and nobody's around. Your family isn't there. What do you do? You take the good stuff out, right? Uh, I, I'm speaking from experience. You go through and you pick out all the good stuff and you leave the stuff that you don't like for somebody else or maybe for later when you're, you're hungrier. And I, I know this from experience. There have been times in my house where I've been the one to sneak the M&Ms out of the trail mix bags or uh, my kids have done it too uh, many years ago. I'll never forget. I'm just kidding. Uh, so, so it's a true story. Um, <laughs> so we have this tendency, we have this temptation to take only what we like and leave the rest, whether that's a bag trail mix, or whether it's God's word, or whether it's God's plan. And by the way, we're just as likely, we're just as tempted, not only to take only what we like, but to give only what we're comfortable with as well. If we're being honest, 
Every single one of us has gone through a time in your life, at least once, where the song would more honestly be sung, I surrender some. All to Jesus, I, some to Jesus, I surrender. Right? We've all been there. It's, it's hard to surrender all. It, it's impossibly hard to surrender all. And sometimes we just take the mentality, I can't do it, so I'm, I'm just going to quit trying. Well, the Israelites haven't experienced the Lord's plan in full because they haven't accepted it in full. And thus the land doesn't have enough produce to sustain them. Midianites are taking it over. The Midianites are coming in and making it a wasteland. It's just an absolute wasteland because everything's being consumed. And so it's no surprise that we read this when we get to verse 6. Judges chapter 6, verse 6. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Well, what are we expecting them to do at this point? What we, I mean, I guess this is what we're expecting them to do. What are we expecting to happen, though? We're probably expecting this to follow the, the, the typical pattern of the cycle that we've seen. People will cry out to God, and God will respond by sending in a judge or, or a deliverer, uh, raising the day by, by raising up, or saving the day by raising up a judge to deliver him, just like he's done every time before. But that's not what he does. Are you surprised? I mean, should it really surprise us all this much? Basically, what the Israelites are doing. Have you guys seen that? I think it's um, an Office Depot commercial where they've got the easy button. Life gets hard and, oh, if only we had an easy button. You know, we can hit the easy button and all of a sudden all of our problems go away. You think they're starting to treat God like that? You think we have a tendency to treat God like that? We do. I mean, there have been lasting change hearts of the people, of the Israelites. They know about God intellectually. They know about God in their minds. But it's just intellectual knowledge. It's just head knowledge, as opposed to knowledge that penetrates the heart. And when knowledge penetrates the heart, it gets reflected in the things that we do. It gets reflected in our actions. We have knowledge about God, and, and the Bible is great, but head knowledge without heart knowledge a deadly thing. It's a very dangerous, dangerous thing. That's why it's so important to be honest with ourselves about the state of our spiritual health. And that's why it's so important that we expose and saturate ourselves with the message of the gospel over and over and over again, week in, week out, day in and day out, because there's nothing that's more important. There is not one thing that you face in life or that I face in life that's more important than understanding the gospel and having that knowledge penetrate our hearts. And so we have to be exposed. Even the most mature Christian needs to expose themselves to the gospel, saturating themselves in the gospel constantly, constantly immersed in it because our hearts are by nature entirely resistant to it. And so God is going to break the pattern here. He's not going to send a Messiah figure to rescue them. He's going to send a messenger. He's not going to send them a savior. He's going to send them a sermon. Let's continue, verses 7 to 10. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you will dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. 
Now the first thing that I find a little bit odd here maybe is that we don't really even know who this prophet is. Uh, He's anonymous. There's no no name. Nothing to give us even the slightest idea of who this person uh, might be. No idea of their gender. No idea of nationality or what. We have no idea who this person is. Maybe they didn't know or maybe it just wasn't recorded. We don't know. But there's no name for the prophet. But it forces us to ask a question because this breaks the cycle. So we have to ask the question, why didn't God send somebody to, to, to deliver the people, to, to lead them into freedom. Well, based on what this anonymous prophet says to the Israelites, it seems clear that they understood very well their need for physical rescue. But they were absolutely clueless to their need for spiritual rescue. They knew, just like their ancestors did, that they needed to be freed from this oppression in a physical sense. But the reason that they're having the physical oppression that they're facing is ultimately a spiritual Problem. It boils down to their lack of faithfulness to God. It boils down to unfaithfulness. God wants them to understand that this all boils down to their resistance to Him. It all boils down to their idolatry. And through this anonymous prophet, God reveals two uh, distinct things to people. Actually, three. First of all, He reminds them of what He has done, and so He's kind of implying what He can do. He's freed them before, and the implication is, I could do this again. So those are, those are two things, and it's followed by a reminder of what they have done. So he's been faithful to rescue them. He's been faithful to restore them time and time again, and the response of the people has been the same all along. Continual, intentional disobedience to God. God has rescued them from slavery in Egypt. God has given them this land. God has driven out their enemies from before them. God has repeatedly reminded that He alone be their God. And there's a contrast that makes. He contrasts His own faithfulness to them with what Israel has done in response to His faithfulness. He says, you have not obeyed my voice. And the point of this message, the reason that God sends this prophet to to give them this sermon, is to stir up a sense of conviction in their hearts. God tells them, he's basically saying, you haven't listened to me. You've never listened to me. Now notice what this does not say. It doesn't say your ancestors obeyed. And he's speaking to Israel as a whole throughout their history coming out of Egypt. He doesn't say, there have been periods where you've been obedient to me. He's not saying, you used to obey, but then you stopped. It doesn't say, you've tried to obey, but you've fallen short. He says, you have not obeyed. And the implication here is that their disobedience, their rebellion against God, has been willful and deliberate all along. All along. Which tells us that their crying out to God has never been a sign of true repentance. Never once. Rather, it's been the result of their regret over their circumstances. They hated their consequences, the consequences of their sin. They hated to be disciplined by God. But they didn't hate their sin. They didn't hate the fact that they had turned their hearts away from God. And so what happens? They just go back to doing it. Because they didn't hate the idolatry. And that's why they have continually fallen back into these cycles of peace and rebellion and peace and rebellion against God. The periods of peace that they've experienced weren't because of their faithfulness. The periods of peace that they've experienced were nothing but the unmerited grace and the unmerited providence of God. It is nothing else. It is all God's grace. 
And this is so applicable to us as Christians because the majority of Christians, and myself included, I'm, I'm grouping myself in here, the majority of Christians struggle with the idea that God desires, that God demands nothing less than complete surrender and complete devotion to Him from His people. Now we accept that on an intellectual level, which is why we sing songs like I Surrender All. But we all resist it on a practical level. Full surrender to God is an impossibly tall task. And yet, anything less than full surrender to God is rebellion. And our rebellion provokes discipline. And how we wish that was not the case. Do any of us like or, or uh, enjoy discipline? That's a tough question, but seriously, think that for a second. Do you like discipline? When was the last time you recognized your need for God's discipline? When was the last time you recognized your need? Because the truth is, we all need it. Every single one of us has fallen short. Every single one of us has sins that trip us up daily. We all need His discipline. See, worldly wisdom says, avoid discipline at all costs. Figure out a way not to get caught. But godly discipline... Godly wisdom is different. Listen to this. This is what we read in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 to 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. What's up there? What? Don't despise the Lord's discipline? Are you serious? Why should we not despise? I mean, nobody likes difficult times, right? Nobody likes going through uh, difficult circumstances, storms of life. So why should we not despise the Lord's discipline? My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. You realize how counterintuitive that is? How against what we would call common sense that seems to be? Don't despise God's discipline. If God is disciplining you, the point here is that it's because he loves you. The author of Hebrews tells us that God disciplines every son whom he receives. Every son whom he receives. So if you're being disciplined, if you're going through a difficult time in life, it's because God loves you the way that a father loves his children. Job takes it actually one step further. Oh, man, who received discipline worse than Job? Jesus, maybe. Jesus, for sure. Who else? Man, that, that, that would be tough. But Job says this, he says, Blessed is the one whom God reproves, disciplines. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. That's from Job chapter 5, verse 17. It's a blessing, according to Job. The person with godly wisdom looks at the difficult circumstances that they're in the middle of, and they see it as a blessing. They see that some way... God is using this to break me free from sin. So they see it as less, they see it as grace. They see it as a sign that God loves them. Now, pastor, this is actually one of those things that I've learned to look for in people. Do people see that God's discipline is a blessing? Or are they hoping that the gate will be wide and the path will be easy? See, this is one of the big problems that I have with the, uh, the prosperity gospel. Oh, man, our, our flesh loves the prosperity gospel. 
the fact that it's not only unbiblical, the prosperity gospel is not only unbiblical, but I would say it is anti-biblical. It is completely diametrically opposed to what Scripture teaches us. But it's revealed the fact that the, the teachers who adhere to prosperity theology view discipline as a curse rather than as a blessing. If you're going through a tough time, it's because you don't have enough faith, according to prosperity theology. According to prosperity theology... Jesus is basically like a lottery ticket, and you get an easy life depending on how strong your faith is. That's not what the Bible teaches. According to prosperity theology, if you're not living your best life now, it's because, man, you're just not right with God. Your faith isn't strong enough. But the truth is that if you are living your best life now, it's because you're headed to hell. That's the only way you could possibly be living your best life now. As if there's not something better for you in the future. On the other side, once we die, that's the best life. This, we're learning to get there. But who, who would teach this stuff? Who would tell you that you can live your best life now without God's discipline in your life? Who would tell you that? Who would tell you to deny the very things that Scripture repeatedly, repeatedly from beginning to end affirms. Who would tell you that? Not God. So God's discipline is a blessing. God's discipline teaches us to listen to his voice, to obey his voice. God desires for us to obey and to grow in obedience to him and to grow in personal holiness. These things aren't optional in the Christian life. But it's so easy for us to treat it like it is, like it's optional, like, well, I'll get to it when I get to it. But maybe the person who doesn't see that God's discipline is actually a blessing simply doesn't want to be obedient to God. But friends, we have to see our need for his discipline. His discipline won't be easy. I think that's part of the definition of discipline. It's not easy. Discipline is never pleasant. Let's keep our eyes on the prize here. Do we want to see our lives individually, you, me, every one of us, do we want to see our lives purged of the things that distract us from surrendering more and more and more of our lives to God? Do we want to get those things out of the way? Really out of the way? Do we want to be shown the things that we need to get rid of? Do we want to be shown the things that we need to repent of? Because if that's what we want, it's going to require God's discipline. See, God doesn't want us to just regret the consequences of our actions. He wants to teach us true, genuine repentance because that's what is required for us to grow in Christ's likeness. Paul said this, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. I don't know about you, but when I read this, I want to make sure that my grief is not worldly. Now, when we see the word salvation, we see the word salvation here, we have to remember that there are three stages of salvation. Anybody remember them? Three stages. The first one's justification. Anybody remember the other two? Sam. Sanctification. Sanctification. And anybody remember the third? 
glorification. That's right. uh, Justification is salvation from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is salvation from the power of sin. And glorification is salvation from the presence of sin, which is what's going to happen someday when we stand in Jesus' presence. So when we see the word salvation, we have to look at the context to see how it's being used so that we can understand which salvation he's referring to. So which type do you think Paul is referring to here? He's referring to sanctification. This is talking about turning away from our sin. He's writing to believers. So he's talking about being purged of sin. Being purged of the things that them from surrendering more of their lives to God. So this is dealing with repentance in the life of the believer. These are the Corinthians. This is the Corinthian church. This is talking about growing in obedience to God. This is talking about growing in personal holiness. See, there, there's a difference that we find here between godly grief and worldly grief. Godly grief leads to freedom from the power of sin because it stirs us to repentance. But the Holy Spirit tells us through Paul's pen here that worldly grief leads to death because worldly grief does not teach a person to hate their sin. So while they're both grief, they're different types of grief, they're completely, completely opposite. But what makes them so different? In a nutshell, worldly grief doesn't change a person's actions because it doesn't cause them to repent. But godly grief does. See, it's easy and even natural for us to to feel grief about our consequences. But try convincing someone to feel grief over the actions of, of their consequences, the actions that led to their consequences. That's a totally different story. One of the complaints that you might hear about our country's penal system is that all it does is make better criminals. You know, you put a bunch of criminals together, they just become better. And when they get out, they're just better at not getting caught. You know, there's always the possibility that while they're incarcerated, instead of spending time thinking about uh, why they shouldn't do what they did, they spend their time thinking about how not to get caught next time. That's worldly grief. It's regret about the consequences, but not about the actions that led to consequences. And it produces death because it produces sin. And the wage of sin is death. It produces death because it doesn't change a person's actions. It doesn't change a person's behavior. It doesn't teach them to actually hate their sin. All they do is hate the consequences of their sin. That's worldly grief. There's a story of a guy who sent a check to the government for back taxes, and he attached a note that said, I feel so guilty for being on my taxes that I had to send you this check. If I don't feel better, I'll send you the rest. <laughs> That's worldly regret. That's worldly regret. It doesn't change how a person feels about what they did. It doesn't change how a person feels about the sin. It focuses on the consequences, whether that's a guilty conscience or a prison sentence or, or whatever. But to bring a person to the point where they're burdened, where they're broken over the knowledge that they've trespassed against the God who gave them life and who continues to give them breath, and for that knowledge to sink in so deep that while they might hate their consequences, they realize that they're deserving of it. There's a point where they don't hate the consequence. They hate the sin. That's not natural at all. That's not natural at all. That's godly repentance. That's the type of godly grief that leads to salvation. Salvation from what? Salvation from the power of sin in their lives. 
That's the type of repentance that you and I need to embrace. That's the type of uh, repentance that you and I need to practice daily and grow in. That's the type of repentance that gives evidence of justification. Sanctification is evidence of justification. Paul Washer said this, he said, quote, The evidence, the raw bone biblical evidence that there was one time in your life that you repented unto salvation is that you continue repenting until today and continue growing in repentance. End quote. See, each of us has sins prevent us from surrendering our hearts more fully, entirely to God. The question is, do you want to learn to hate those sins? Not just tolerate them, not just work around them, but to hate them. Do you want to hate your sin? Do you want to see them from God's perspective? Are you ready to listen to God? Are you ready to obey God? Are you willing to see that God's discipline is a blessing? It's not a curse. It's a blessing. And it's a reflection of His love for you. It's a reflection of, it's a reflection of His grace toward you. Are you eager to obey Him? Even if that means being disciplined by Him. These are the questions that this prophet's message forces us to face, forces us to wrestle with, forces us to to, to deal with. See, true repentance will actually lead us to a deeper love for Jesus. Because true repentance causes us to realize that we didn't get what we deserved. What did we deserve? We deserve to be separated from God. We deserve to take His wrath upon ourselves against our sins. Not a single one of us has ever deserved anything less, anything other than His righteous judgment. But when we realize that there's grace, when we realize that God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to bear His wrath against sin on the behalf of everyone who would trust in Jesus for salvation, and that we are thus forgiven by the One who had every right to condemn us, how can we not love Him more and more? That's what it does. Discipline ultimately spurs us to love Jesus more and more. Worldly grief will cause a person to hate themselves more and more, to hate their lives more and more. Through repentance will cause a person to love the Lord Jesus more and more. That's because worldly grief focuses on the self. Man, I hate where I am right now. Man, my life was destroyed. Man, I, I, I hate how my plans didn't work out. It's all focused on me, me, me. But godly grief and repentance focuses on God. It focuses on how sin has offended Him. How sin has grieved His heart. And it focuses on what He did about it. He sent the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross in order that we could be redeemed. In order that we could be rescued from God's wrath against the sin. And so God's response to the people of Israel there is not to immediately rescue them. Because He loves them. He loves them enough that He wanted to break them from their sin. He wanted to break them from their idolatry. They wanted to have their greatness as a nation restored. And they regret that they've lost their independence and their sovereignty as a nation. But those two things are actually one of their idols. Because that's what they want more than they want God. In 1763, President Lincoln designated April 30th 
as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And I just want to read a portion of this proclamation that he made on that day. He said this, quote, It is the duty of nations, as well as of men, who owe their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. And to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. The awful calamity of civil war which now desolates the land may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. We've grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has grown. But we have forgotten God. End quote. Abraham Lincoln was a godly man. And it amazes me that this is from like 150 years ago because it sounds like something that we could say today about our nation, about the world around us. You know, there's a lot of talk about how we wish that, that God would restore our nation. But let me ask you this. At what cost? At what cost? So that we can be where we were before? Because where we led before led to where we are now. The truth is that nations and kingdoms come and go, but the Lord lasts forever. He remains forever. So when we sing songs like, God bless America, maybe we need to consider the possibility that that might not look like prominence, wealth, or independence. It might look like poverty and persecution. See, neither you nor I can cause a nation to repent any more than we can raise a dead man from the grave. But what we can do, what we can do is continue to grow in our own personal obedience, our own personal holiness by growing in personal daily repentance. When tough times come our way, and they will, every one of us, tough times will come our way. When God seems distant, when the waves of the proverbial storm are engulfing us, Instead of seeing them as God's judgment against you, instead of seeing it as God abandoning you, remember that God has a sovereign purpose in it to make you more like Christ. And He has promised that He will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. See See God's discipline as grace, as a blessing that you don't deserve. He's freely given us something better than any sin that we love. No matter how much we love sin, no matter which sin it is, He's given us something better than that sin. He's given us grace. So know that He loves you too much to leave you as you are, to leave you where you are, too much to allow you to love your idols, too much to allow you to continue to embrace or tolerate sin. He treasures you. He treasures you. He treasures your heart. And he treasures your heart too much to share it with an idol. And so our challenge here is to move past regret about the temporal consequences of sin and to repent the sins, to learn to hate the sins, turn away from the sins, 
The challenge of the repentance that God calls us to is that true repentance involves reaching the point where we hate our sin instead of hating the consequences. In fact, we embrace the consequences. We accept God's discipline as a blessing. Knowing that He loves enough to use whatever circumstances are necessary, whatever difficult circumstances, whatever discipline is necessary to break us away from the power of sin and idolatry in our lives. Not one of us is going to be perfect, and that's why He sent His Son. So that whoever believes in Jesus will be justified, will be declared innocent before God, because not one of us can stand before Him, before a a purely righteous judge. Not one of us can stand before Him. But by faith in Jesus, God joins us with grace and mercy. Not that we deserve it, but because He loves us. Lord Jesus, as we examine our hearts before you, Lord, we freely confess to you that we have sinned against you, that we continue to sin against you. And Lord, maybe we don't have the the conviction that we need to wage war against these sins that, that sometimes overwhelm us. And so I pray, God, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you not only show us the areas in our hearts that we need to surrender more fully to you, but I pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow more and more like your son. Pray, Lord, that he would be what we desire more than anything, that Jesus would be what we desire more than anything, more than any position, more than any sin. Teach us, O Lord, to live for you. Teach us, Lord, to hate the things that you hate and to love the things that you love in order that you'll be glorified in our lives, in our thoughts, in our actions. We love you, Lord. I pray that you would help us to see your discipline as a blessing. And Lord, we thank you for your discipline. We know that you are causing all things to work together for the good of your people. And I pray, Lord, that our lives would just be a constant praise toward you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we have nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission, teaching timeless truths in these truthful times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.